Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Phil Goldfeder away on assignment this week, and we are post-State of the Union. Those of you a couple weeks ago might have thought the State of the Union was not going to happen. Government shut down. The State of our Union is closed. Now it's open. It might be closed again. We're not exactly sure. And president goes into the house of representatives into uh, what has now become somewhat of enemy territory. Of course, we know that the pretty starkly divided, but the house, of course, controlled by Democrats now uh, a more uh, hostile environment. And uh, there were some interesting moments with regard to that. Uh, let's just I'll kind of run through them. Long speech, very long speech, almost a record. Perhaps it was a record. Uh, some very poignant moments, some very nice moments. Uh, n- Trump is definitely the president, I should say. Uh, we'll give we'll talk about give that the president is better off the teleprompter. I think we all know that when he has to go to the teleprompter, it can be a little bit stilted, but he still did a nice job of getting his message out there. And it's very clear we are in 2020 mode, folks. The presidential race has essentially already begun. We've seen it beginning on the Democratic side. And we can see the president echoing his themes for 2020 for his reelection. And they being uh, border security, border security, immigration, or illegal immigration, because there were some interesting pieces of that and the new one the new one out there is socialism i hope you picked up on that president making a strong case kind of an anti-venezuela thing but saying that the united states will never be socialist and getting a large round of applause for that was interesting because i you know there were democrats who weren't applauding and i was kind of thinking well the united states is not socialist we can all kind of applaud that uh, he went after New York in particular on abortion. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, most interesting or not most interesting, but most poignantly for many of us out there in the Jewish community talked about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and had uh, not just a ho- Holocaust survivors, but a Holocaust and Pittsburgh massacre survivor who was also his birthday, and that was a wonderful moment, as well as a liberator of uh, Nazi concentration camps, a Jewish liberator who was there sitting next, <coughs> excuse me, sitting next to a survivor that he had liberated. That was a very wonderful moment. And for those of us who have, I think, rightly criticized the president for seeming to be insensitive on issues of anti-Semitism and seeming to be insensitive when on issues of white supremacy and seeming to be insensitive on these issues, you have to feel, yes, this was scripted. And yes, this was theater, political theater. But at the same time, it doesn't happen if the president doesn't want it to. And clearly he wants this to happen. He wants to send this message 
that he stands against anti-Semitism and bigotry and hate against Jews and remembering the Holocaust. If you recall, at the White House Hanukkah party, he brought Holocaust survivors up to the stage and acknowledged them. And I don't think the president is a racist, a bigot. I think he has a little bit of a blind spot when it comes to other people's racism. And I, I think we should acknowledge that, that sometimes hey, he didn't want to comment on Steve King, on Congressman Steve King's white supremacy talk a couple of weeks ago when everybody else was falling over themselves to condemn him in the Republican Party and saying these ideas have no place. And the president said, well, I didn't hear him. I don't know about it. I don't think that's true. I'm sure he knew about it. He just doesn't want to, he doesn't want to deal with it. But at the State of the Union, he certainly did. Whether he was pushed, cajoled, kicked, whatever it was to do it, it was probably the largest and longest acknowledgement more than once of the sickness of anti-Semitism and how it must be combated and how it has no place in America or American society. And you got to give him credit. At the same time, after a two-year lapse, the president has finally nominated a ambassador, ambassador at large. This is an ambassador that roves around the world to combat anti-Semitism and other forms of intolerance. Uh, this has been a, a lot of people have been puzzled by the fact that this seat has been, this ambassadorship has remained vacant for so long. Yes, maybe the State Department doesn't feel that it's necessary, but a lot of people out there who study the issue uh who are familiar with the issue, know that this is a very important position, that other countries look at the fact that the United States has an ambassador-level person who is out there on behalf of the United States government, the full weight and importance of the United States government who is out there to say that we will fight anti-Semitism wherever we see it and participate in international organizations and those treaties also to combat anti-Semitism. The European countries, the OSCE, and many years ago I actually had the uh, um, opportunity to go to OSCE conference on anti-Semitism, and these countries actually get together and they discuss meaningfully how to combat hate, bigotry, and particularly anti-Semitism. And... Yeah, people could say it's diplomacy, it's a lot of talk, but the countries of the world take these things seriously. The European countries take this seriously, and there's no reason for the United States not to have an ambassador-level representative to these talks who can represent the thoughts and interests of the President of the United States. So, uh, Elon Carr, uh, I don't know him, but from Los Angeles, uh, apparently the pick of, of uh, or the, I'm sorry, the influential recommendation of Sheldon Adelson, and a Justice Department official, and, he, and I think that's a very good background for this spot, is going to be, uh, hopefully, if he gets confirmed, will be the new representative for, uh, for this. And this is a good sign that they're getting around to filming this. Look, I, I have said many times that one of the big problems of this administration is the slow... Uh, pace of nominations. I know they blame the Democrats. I know they talk about the hold and a lot of the Democrat a lot of nominations are being held up. But I think the facts are that these nominations are have actually not been made in many, many cases. There just isn't a person who has been put forward by the administration. There are lots of seats that need 
to be filled at different levels. We have five acting cabinet secretaries. That's not um, now. The president apparently seems to like that because he means he can has more flexibility with hiring and firing. But we shouldn't be churning through cabinet level secretaries. You want some continuity in government. The United States government is too big an organization for a single person to micromanage. And even if the president feels that he is able to do that, you need to give vest. You need to vest the cabinet secretaries with authority of being confirmed by the United States Senate in order to do that. I mean, Jim Mattis left. We have an acting Depart- uh, Secretary of Defense. We have an acting, uh, now we have an acting Secretary of the Interior. We have an acting Attorney General. We have an acting Chief of Staff, who is also the Director of OMB, and go on, go on, go on. That is that is too much. So let's go back to the State of the Union a little bit for a second. Now, the one couple interesting takeaways from my perspective is number one, as I said, it was a long speech. And by, by the way, if people out there say, hey, I don't watch the State of the Union. I don't really care about the State of the Union. It's just a speech. I know that there's this great pomp and circumstances. I kind of agree with them. I don't, in, in this modern day thing, I don't even know what the point really is. It's kind of has this uh, magisterial type of thing. I mean, I like, I enjoy the pomp and circumstance and the, the theater and the ceremony of it, but it's kind of predictable, right? The you have a divided government and one side claps and one side doesn't and one side. I mean that was the interesting uh, dichotomy here is that you have as opposed to last year when you had Paul Ryan and Mike Pence sitting up there and they both were in sync as far as their clapping and standing up. You, to this this year you had Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence there, two polar opposites politically. And it was interesting to see, watch Nancy Pelosi kind of stone-faced through some of it, kind of looking through her pages, seeing how much longer is the speech going to be. And occasionally she got up to clap. Mike Pence kind of jumped up at every opportunity. Republicans took their cues from him. And the Democrats, many of them, took their cues from Nancy Pelosi and Sid. But And they, you know, some of them, it was almost like she was kind of controlling the crowd, kind of the way you go to Hasidic wedding and the Reb is there with his hand and he controls the pace of the music and the crowd as they do things. And the, uh, the, so Nancy, so Nancy Pelosi was uh, kind of controlling the Democrats and kind of sitting there stone-faced. Now, the interesting thing here, one interesting thing about it is that, and many people might not have picked up on this, but officially the way it works is the Speaker of the House, uh, the Speaker of the House comes in, I'm sorry, when the President comes in, the Speaker of the House introduces the President because the State of the Union is actually as a part of a congressional session. It's a joint session of Congress, and that is how that's how it ha- how it happens. It's a joint session of Congress that happens in the House of Representatives, and the Speaker is supposed to introduce. And that's what happened last year. Paul Ryan introduced the President of the United States. Uh, president got up there. I mean, President Trump got up to the podium and started his speech, and. Uh, Pelosi was standing there. It looked like she was like, okay, what now? <laughs> uh, I don't know if it was intentional. Uh, if it was, it was a, it was an interesting dig at her. Um, I'll say that. A creative dig, whoever came up with that one to just start. I kind of think that it was just lack of prep and this is what we're going to do and here's the speech and let's get going. 
Uh, let's get the let's get this let's get this rolling. But that that happens, and then Pelosi. Oh well, the other thing is the all the women in white, the women uh, symbol, of the women's suffrage movement. Well, that was an interesting visual, uh, and you had lots of women in white, and they didn't know whether to clap. It was interesting the things that they were clapping for and not clapping for. I will say this, uh, you know. Immigration is a very nuanced argument, and I know that the Republicans are going full on on immigration, so much so, I'll give you an example, and this is kind of, you know, clearly the president is running up, but Representative Matt Getz yesterday um, of Florida, super conservative member of the House of Representatives, they were having a hearing on gun control, and his... He was talking that the biggest danger to public safety in the United States is not guns, it's illegal immigration, illegal immigrants. Now, that there are statistics with regard to this, and that's just a false statement. That's just not true, okay? Uh, the I know that there are many in the Republican Party who want to convince the public that this is the case, that immigration is the biggest single threat to the United States of America. Illegal immigration, the southern border is the biggest single threat to the United States of America. That was the whole thing with the terrorism argument. We have terrorists coming over. Now, most people, and very clearly, it's very clearly the case that most that terrorists who come to this country and supposed terrorists are caught, try and get in here by air. They come or they come on tourist visas and they overstay. That's how most illegal immigration happens to this country. And people just disappear. The idea that, and we know that these shootings and even the ones that are coming, that are done, that we've had, that are linked or inspired by Islamic fundamentalism, these are not illegal immigrants from Mexico. So I just don't know why there are those out there who feel like they have to make up their own facts. I know some of the things about gun control and guns are inconvenient for a lot of Republicans. And I think that, like with everything, there are nuanced arguments out there, and I wish that America could kind of come to a middle, more middle ground on some of these issues, where these hot button issues, whether they be abortion or whether they be gun control or whether they be immigration. We need big fixes on some of these in a place that society can be comfortable, the American society can be comfortable, that everybody can feel that their rights are protected. I would say, you know, on gun control, what ha- what works in the cities is not what works in rural America, and much of America is a very rural place. Even within the state of New York, you have rural areas where guns are important for hunting, for public safety. If you live in a place where it takes an and you call the police, and it takes an hour for them to come. Okay, you know that they're going to be an hour away, maybe two hours away, if you live in that type of place. Okay, do you want a gun for your own safety? Do you want to have a gun? Should you be able to have a gun? I, I Personally, I think yes. Do you want a gun for hunting? If you want a gun for, if you're a rancher, and you want, I mean, these are things that people, and people in the cities who, who live in big cities, they, they say, well, no, no, of course you don't need one. And immigration, if you live in certain places, you want, you have, uh, you're interested. I mean, if you're a farmer, you need migrant workers. You need them. If you're in the tech business, you need talents from around the world. There are, we need immigration. Okay. There are other people who don't feel that way, but that is important. It's important for any society, important for the health of any economy. And on abortion, where the president went, uh, attacked 
recent laws in Virginia and New York. You know, the Jewish position is certainly, and I just, overall, we can talk about this. Jewish position is somewhere in between. I don't know that we are necessarily with the pro-life movement. We're definitely not with the pro-choice movement. But the idea that now you can have an abortion in New York State seemingly up until the time of birth and that can that abortion can be performed by a non-doctor which is the new New York State law and we're at, people are out there celebrating this i mean the governor had the empire state building asked for it to be lit up pink in honor of this law when are we going to realize how offensive that is to the sacredness of life the idea that a baby could be delivered alive and essentially, I don't even want to talk about it on the show. That, to me, that's the shocking part. Is yes, as I, I am, I think Bill Clinton had it right. Abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, and we should not be supporting such a thing, or certainly not celebrating such a thing. Yes, people have rights, and people should be able to confer with a medical doctor. But at the same time, a we have to balance the idea that life is sacred and it should be sacred in our society and certainly we should not give somebody an option to deliver a live baby and then kill them that just offensive and shocking to any person in my mind that's to me and that's the problem is there's no nuance anymore so when a father of a parkland this happened yesterday just to get back to that when a father of a parkland victim shooting victim confronts a congressman about gun control at a congressional hearing and then the congressman says well forget about guns let's talk about immigration because that's the biggest i mean this is the problem is that we're talking past each other and people can't actually get can't actually even understand or try and understand what's going on on the other side and the truth is i put the blame on an elected official because that's the person who's paid and supposed to be listening to the people you can't be that doctrinaire Okay, there's a ton of stuff going on otherwise, but as I said, the 2020 race is on. Socialism is going to be a big theme. I think we've seen that in a couple times. The Democratic Party, and there are those on the fringe of the Democratic Party who are doubling down on the socialist thing. And that has also has implications for Israel. We saw Representative Ilan Omar of uh, Minnesota, Somali, American, Muslim... Uh, couldn't, wouldn't take questions from a CNN reporter with regard to Israel as an ally or BDS. And, you know, they don't, after tweeting things that had, she got into a Twitter war or a Twitter war with uh, Representative Lee Zeldin here of New York uh, on, on giving some anti-Semitic tropes with regard to people being pro-Israel. It's, it's pretty, uh, the fact that, you know, you have two now members of the United States House of Representatives who are kind of superstars, who are being thrown out there as superstars, Elon Omar and uh, uh, not forget about AOC, Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, who are out there kind of being pro-BDS and uh, not supporting Israel. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty troubling. And the Democrats are now forming a kind of a pro-Israel group out there, I saw 
announced last week. So let's see. And now these issues are being debated openly on TV. CNN had a little panel that devolved into a little bit of a hostility to Israel match. So we should be we should be nervous about this. Um, I was surprised I was at the APAC dinner uh, in New York, and unfortunately, you know, because they're mostly Democrats in New York City, there were not a lot of Democrats there, um, and not as many as there used to be. Another thing the president said, and maybe it was a faux pas, apparently wasn't not part of the speech, but he talked about he wants record numbers of legal immigration, which is good. I think so. I mean, I think people should come here legally, uh, but that is definitely at odds with some people's administration who have been trying to stop legal immigration. So that was an interesting one. And the one thing he didn't mention, of course, was the shutdown. Obviously, he doesn't want to go there, but... I think a little bit of acknowledgement of the pain of 800,000 federal workers probably was uh, in order. So uh, the other thing is, you know, as far as the white, uh, Tiffany Trump, but the memo, she was not, she was wearing white together with all the Democratic congresswomen at uh, the thing. Now, I don't know. I mean, these fashion choices may be vetted, maybe not. It's kind of unclear, but she was, in fact... Uh, wearing white now who had a worse who's had a worse presidential rollout than elizabeth warren um you know the whole american indian thing they found again this week that she put native american or american indian on a job application going way back when if you're still apologizing for something like two years later it's your your initial apology clear wasn't enough and you just have it complete i mean talk about crisis management is really about getting it all out there, saying this is what happened. And I think she's finished, personally. I just think, I don't see any way that she's going to be able to surmount this thing of having claims, American Indian, ancestry, but actually claiming it. And she says, well, I never did it to get ahead. Oh, well, I thought, there's no good answer on this other than to have said initially is I thought that this was my a long time ago and never you and then that's it done you know this is what and now it's kind of this drip of what else is out there that's going to come up what application how many times what YouTube video or what uh, tape can they unearth of her talking about being a Cherokee from Oklahoma and you know the Cherokee tribe has already disavowed her so you kind of you have that thing is you're going to be uh, out against them. So that kind of brings us to, I guess we'll go off of 2020 for a second. Well, the other thing is that, of course, uh, as I said, the president skipped the skipped the introduction, right? He skipped Pelosi and kind of didn't acknowledge, as George W. Bush did when Nancy Pelosi became speaker during his tenure, of the fact, the historic nature, and the fact that the new Congress, and even just to acknowledge the changed circumstances. Uh, humility and Donald Trump do not go together easily. I think we can all acknowledge that. Both his uh, uh, both his supporters and detractors. And there was very little in the way of humility in that speech. Um, but that's just his way. And I think a lot of his supporters probably wouldn't like that. Uh, he did complain about investigations. I think generally when he does that, he doesn't look particularly strong. But uh, 
what all, I guess what else is he going to do? He doesn't want them. Um, so he's going to try and wish them away. That's probably not going to happen. He has met a force that is kind of co-equal to him. And uh, in many ways, it's of his own making, as he found out when he talked about employment for women and you know, kind of seemingly acknowledged, but inadvertently acknowledged the fact that many of the women who are now elected to Congress owe their jobs to the president. And uh, I think the last thing to comment on as we close this week is this what's going on in Virginia. Uh, I've never seen a bigger mess politically anywhere. Uh, the governor, it's just inexplicable just to say, Governor Northam, there was a picture in a yearbook of a guy wearing blackface and another guy in a Klan outfit. He said neither one is him. Number one, why was it in his page? Inexplicable. And then he says, well, I wore blackface once to dress up as Michael Jackson. I like to do a good moonwalk. Another great example or of crisis management. Now, of course, the lieutenant governor, who potentially would be the one who replaced him, uh, he, he has been accused of sexual assault. So we don't want him either. And maybe he should resign. And then the attorney general, who might be the other person to come, has also worn blackface. So he's out. And I've never seen anything like this. I mean, it's just, it's quite incredible that you had the entire leadership of the, uh, of the state uh, all in mired in this uh in this controversy and scandal all at the same time and the question is do they all resign and therefore give the give the governorship over to the speaker of the house who is a republican and that republican only became speaker because the virginia legislature and we'll end on this point because it's too much if you remember last year, we talked about this. The Virginia legislature, one seat was decided because it ended up in a tie by a flip of a coin. Or maybe it was a lot. Whatever it was, it was decided by chance. I think it was the flip of a coin. It went to the Republicans. The Republicans have the House in Virginia, and that's how, uh, that's how that was decided. So not a lot of legitimacy at the top of the ticket. And now we wonder why people have lost faith in their institutions of governments. So we'll end, end that on a sad note this week. As I said, we got big stuff coming up. In two weeks, there's a public advocate election here in New York City. That's February 26th. If you are a New York City voter, you should definitely be prepared for that. It's an open election, wide open special election, 17 candidates on the ballot, 10 of them debated last night. Uh, it was very interesting uh, to say the least, I had a front row seat, and we will discuss that next week here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.